Welcome back to Brailcast. My name's Matthew Horsepool, and coming up this time... In 1999, the International Council on English Braille was formed. Uh, it currently has seven members. They are Australia, Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, United Kingdom and United States. Dave Williams and I caught up with Judy Dixon, President of the International Council on English Braille, to find out more about the organisation and its most recent midterm executive committee meeting. The event was recorded on the 21st of June 2022. Hello, good evening and welcome back to the Braillists Foundation and tonight we are going to learn all about the International Council on English Braille. What is it? Where is it? Why is it? What does it do? And how can you get involved? And here to guide us through that, I can't think of anybody uh, who would be better qualified. It's Judy Dixon. Hello, Judy. Hello, Dave. Are you well? Yes, yes, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Excellent. I um, started down a little bit of a, a, a wormhole. You know, when you go online and you start clicking links and you find a subject that interests you and then you click another link and you click another link before you know it, you know, a good chunk of time has gone by. And that really happened when I started uh, searching for Judy Dixon Braille on Google. Um, there's a, there's plenty of material out there and I'm definitely not going to regurgitate it. I think your favorite article was the one written by Deborah Kendrick for Access World. World, maybe about 20 years ago now, where you are described as the, um, well, how would you describe yourself? Well, that particular article says, what, she rules the Braille domain? That was 2002. I wasn't even a member of the Braille Authority yet. Um, I'm not sure why she said that, actually, but the, that particular article at least is an accurate biography, if not nothing, if, if not a little bit over the top. Well, I think you were pretty well established at the National Library Service. Ah, well, yes. I'd been there for 21 years at that point. Well, there we are. And you're still there. And I'm still there. Right. So uh, tell us then, so you've been a lifelong, obviously, Braille user or not yet, as we often say when people ask that question. And uh, of course, you're involved with the National Library Service that provides uh, Braille reading materials to people across um, North America. And you are the president of the International Council on English Braille. So just tell us a little bit about ICEB, because there hasn't always been an International Council on English Braille, has there? <laughs> No, it kind of evolved when the the idea, don't throw things, oh, they can't throw things at me, can they? No, that's good. Because um, the idea for updating Braille and revising Braille actually came about when two individuals in the United States, Tim Cranmer and Abe Nimitz, wrote a memo, a very famous memo, to the the Braille Authority of North America in 1991, basically saying there's a real problem with Braille. You know, we have four ways to write dollar sign and, and on and on and on about all the things they thought was wrong with Braille and it needed a major overhaul. And the Braille Authority of North America said, okay, fine, we'll take this on. And they started to work on it. And by 1993, they said, well, this is ridiculous for us to be working on English Braille by ourselves. Let's involve the rest of the world. And so a committee was formed that had people 
on it from various English-speaking countries. And it was called something like the Committee to Revise Literary Braille to the Best of Our Abilities. It had about an eight-letter acronymic. And that happened in 93. And they formed about eight committees to do different things to one to worry about the contractions and one to worry about the formatting and one to worry about this and that and the other thing and the committee that did the vast majority of the work was referred to as committee two chaired by joe sullivan who who uh, was then the uh, creator and and owner of duxbury systems and they worked on what ultimately became UEB. And in 1999, the International Council on English Braille was formed. Uh, it currently has seven members. They are Australia, Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, United Kingdom, and United States. And there was an eighth, wasn't there? There was an eighth. Nigeria was on it for a while, but uh, mostly through the efforts of of an individual. And uh, so Nigeria is no. It's not that Nigeria doesn't use UEB. They they there are people in the country that still do, but organizationally they're not involved now. So ICEB was formed to to lead the charge to 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 unify these these braille codes that's right to look after you to to finish the process of developing ueb which it in 2004 iceb made the decision that ueb was sufficiently well developed i like that i always liked that phrase uh to so that countries can start adopting it and um in 2005 um Australia adopted it. I think New Zealand adopted it soon thereafter. Canada was soon thereafter. The last two countries to adopt it were the United Kingdom and the United States. Ironic that the idea started in the United States and the United States was the last uh, country to adopt. And And the other irony is that Abe Nemeth, again, one of the perhaps um, fathers of this, would you say, um, in some ways there lies some of the controversy when it comes to mathematics, because for those of us in the UK, uh, just to kind of update everyone in, in the US, you have two codes for mathematical notation. That's correct. The Nemeth code, which is which is still being used in the United States, um, it's become somewhat of a state issue. So some states are choosing to continue using Nimeth code and some states are, are choosing to use the UEB technical code. And for those of us in the UK unfamiliar with Nemeth, can you just sort of highlight the main differences? Oh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Um, it's about efficiency, isn't it, really, I suppose? It's yes, I think it's it, it is shorter. It's well, I think as as the new chair of our UEB technical committee put it you know it, he he says it's not fair to compare the technical aspects of UEB with Nimeth because Nimeth was developed to be a math code it is a math code it was started it was initially conceived to be a math code UEB technical aspects of UEB is a literary code that can represent technical materials and and so the technical people, he, many technical people, feel that 
Nimeth is, is better suited for, the, for their purposes. It may well be better suited for very, very technical things. But is it the best code to use when you have a New York Times article about the weather? Perhaps not. And I, I will move on from this, but I just want to give you the opportunity to, to speak to it. What would you say to those people around the world in those countries who were a bit disgruntled, shall we say, at their country's adoption of, of UEB? You know, we sometimes hear uh, from from individuals, you know, I, I work at RNIB in my, my day job, and I, and I know some people were quite um miffed shall we say at the uh, at the uk's adoption of ueb even though james bowden tells me we made fewer changes than than many other countries um it's hard for people to change isn't it particularly when you've been doing something all your life because one of the biggest changes if, for some of us especially those of us in the united states was something that you had already lived with which was contracting syllables more syllables than we were than we ever did but what I would say, and I do get this question often, I mean, I get people saying, I hate UEB. Well, that's really sad because it is the, the code of the land. But what I, at the, at the risk of sounding a bit um, preachy and so forth, I, I, I would say step back and, and take a look at the big picture. Think about the entire Braille population, not just yourself as a lifelong well well ensconced reader of braille think about children in school think about kids who are in school these days without a braille teacher or with limited braille teacher intervention who are using a braille note or a braille sense to do their schoolwork and relying on back translation to produce an accurate document and a lot about ueb is so that it will back translate more accurately because this is a reality for many, many children in school today. This is not about making the Braille code better for those of us who are middle-aged, lifelong Braille readers, but we're also the most flexible. We know Braille well. There were only nine contractions were eliminated and no new contractions were added. We didn't have to learn any new contractions, a couple of new punctuation marks. And the people in the U.S. do find the, uh, I personally do too. I don't like the, all of the contracted syllables, but did I stop reading Braille because of it? No. And I don't, I don't, um, I am, I guess maybe a rare person in this, but I don't use contracted Braille on my Braille display. So I read all of my email and all the braille that I read all day long on my braille display, I read in computer braille. Well, that's interesting. I'm sure we'll get some questions about that later on. Um, sufficiently complete. So it's really the Code Maintenance Committee of ICB that, that look after the code and, and, you know, sort of decide things like the TH in Beethoven and all of that. Um, but you're involved in it. It's not just about the code anymore, is it? There's a technology committee. There's a PR committee. Um, there, there is other work to be done. There's a music committee. Even though music is an international code and the English Braille aspects of music are only a very small part of it, um, we are making efforts to work together with people who are working on music throughout the world. Okay. So... Uh, I see. I mean, where's the the parameters then? I mean, obviously English, but 
it's not just about developing a unified code anymore or maintaining that that code. What what's the scope of ICEB now in in 2022? It's it is it is about maintaining the code. It's also about um, continuing to develop the technical code because we have a lot of work to do there. It's it is it is not finished and um, it's being used and people have comments and suggestions and we've we've had some difficulty with that committee we've had several different chairs over the last few years um we we have a brand new chair now and and hopefully the committee will be making some more progress the way the way i see eb works is each one of our committees has representatives from each one of our member countries as official representatives and then we have many observers so one of the questions that your listeners may have is how can i get involved and one of the ways you can get involved is to become an observer on one of the ICEB committees. And to do that, if you want to become an observer on an ICEB committee, then you would contact your Braille authority, in your case, UKAAF, UCAF, and um, ask the president, is it you, Dave? No, it isn't me. No, it's Roger. <laughs> oh, Roger. Okay, Roger's the president of UCAF. So contact the, the president or someone in UCAF. You, they will know how to do this. And, um, you know, get, get um, approval to become an observer on, on a, an ICEB committee. And, and that would, it's a, it's, I mean, we do listen to observers. We, we have a lot of conversation and a lot of talk. And, and observers do have an, a lot of opportunity to give input. Now, just a few weeks ago, the Canadian Braille Authority, Braille Literacy Canada, um, hosted online the ICB midterm meeting. So this is a, a meeting that sort of sits halfway between the General Assemblies. So we had the General Assembly in October 2020, and then more recently, the, uh, the midterm meetings. So can you share with everyone really what the, the sort of the main outcomes and talking points were from those meetings? We met three hours a day virtually. We were supposed to be in Montreal. And so we were only able to talk about food instead of actually enjoying it. But we did meet three hours a day for five days. In those times, we had three um, invited speakers. One of them was uh, Debbie Gillespie, who is from Canada, who did the keynote for the whole conference. And she talked about Braille, what Braille has meant to her in her life and, and kind of where she thinks Braille is going and just a, just a nice celebration of Braille and, and personal reflections on, on Braille. She's a really passionate speaker, Debbie, isn't she? She, you know, she was bursting out of my speakers with enthusiasm when I was uh, listening to that that presentation. Yes, it was very, very well done. And then we had a, a speaker who I came across um, a few months ago, and she, this is a woman who is a historian. She is a professor at the University of Toronto, and she wrote an article for the. Disability Studies Quarterly about Charles Barbier. And Charles Barbier is the, um, the, as so much of our history and the books about Louis Braille and the, the, all of the documents about Louis Braille would have, would have told us that Charles Barbier developed a dot writing code for 
soldiers to communicate at night and and somehow he brought it to the school for the blind and louis saw it and said what a great idea and went off and developed braille that's the short version um according to this historian um that is not the case um that charles barbier was uh, had been a soldier at one time but was a man who was interested in writing systems and developed all kinds of different writing systems um, a way to use a pen knife to create letters so that you'd by by slicing paper in various ways and all kinds of other things and he developed a dot writing system for blind people that he that he in fact developed it for blind people and that he um, and that he did send his code to the school for the blind but the school for the blind didn't really do much with it they handed it over to the students hey some guy dropped this by what do you think that charles Bar that louis never met charles barbie until much later in his life anyway so she had lots of lots of um revelations to share with us about about charles barbier and 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 his role in developing braille which is very very interesting i mean you know we 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 think we've got history the way we thought it was and and someone's coming along who has examined uh, primary documents and says no it didn't happen that way at all it happened this other way so that was kind of a lot of fun i the, the historians among us found that pretty interesting I, th I thought it was interesting how you know some of the attendees responded to that you know a lot of people were kind of lining up to say this this doesn't change the way i feel about louis braille you know came to his defense <laughs> And it isn't about Louis Braille. It really, it, it was not of, and she, and she was very clear about that. You know, this this has nothing to do with Louis Braille. This is about Charles Barbier. But it is about how did the the idea of of a of a dot code, um, come into into existence, and and that was pretty interesting. And then the third invited speaker was actually a colleague of mine from the National Library Service. They, the the um, ICEB Music Committee has been very very interested in the scanning of Braille. And it's something that the National Library Service has been doing for many, many years and has now now scanned over 25% of its full entire collection. I mean, scanned thousands and thousands of, of Braille scores. And mostly we're doing it for music, but we have staff who, who, who do this, you know, essentially full time. And so I, asked one of them to make a presentation to ICEB about the mechanics of it and how it's done and how successful it is and what we use to do it and so forth. So that was um, of, of great interest to the, to the music committee because more people want to, want to do it. Yeah, and some of those tools are really quite dated, aren't they? That, uh... Yes, but they're still working. They're still, still rocking because they've been doing it a long time. But they are developing new tools and, use, and, and using some resources of the Library of Congress to do that. They, they're digitizing uh, people and going to develop a kind of um, using the, some of the technology that's used in, in 3D scanning to 3D scan Braille. And hopefully that will help scan interpoint materials because the tool that is the oldest and and now has to run on a windows 7 machine <laughs> um is 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 a tool that can scan interpoint braille fairly well the other tool that we have the more somewhat more modern 
Braille scanning software package does not do interpoint Braille very well. So they're they're especially eager to be able to uh, have something more modern to do interpoint Braille. How about the business of ICB, Judy? What what changed there? Much of the rest of the meeting was each of our major committees had um, anywhere from thirty to ninety minutes to. Um, talk about what they were doing and these committees would be the the kind of administrative committees the the bylaws committee the committees such as that the pr committee the one that manages our social media presence and promotional committee one of one of the things that i have been so fierce about ever since i've been president of iceb is that we will not take on things that we do not have the resources to pursue well and so um there we we there's a lot of uh, push for us to do more in the area of braille promotion and i care very much about braille promotion and certainly understand why we want to do it but i also know that it's very labor intensive and i don't want to get us um, onto a treadmill where we have to keep doing things because we started them and we've generated something that's going to perpetuate itself into a, more work than we can manage. So we are um, taking a fairly low key. The only thing we've started anew in recent times is an is a quarterly newsletter, which is very well done and very nice. And, uh, and that's an effort to maintain. So uh, it's, we're doing that. And we have a, a Twitter presence and a, and a Facebook presence. So we had a committee talking about that. And we talked about, uh, and then we had our various uh, technical committees, the Braille Technology Committee, the Code Maintenance Committee, the Music Committee, the Research Committee. The Research Committee doesn't actually do research, but what they do is gather information about research and distribute it among the Research Committee. And, and they're doing a great job. It's quite interesting, the things they come up with. I was going to ask you about a piece of research recently. We heard uh, last week at uh, the uh, Braille Literacy Canada Symposium from Robert Engelbretson, who, as you know, uh, is a, a linguist and uh, is interested in the area of stems and affixes to words and where a contraction bridges those. Uh, is, is that something that the research committee of ICB would be looking at? Yes, it is. And it's something I want the code maintenance committee to look at, too. And uh, so we keep trying to push Robert Engelbretson's research and the code maintenance committee closer and closer together so that we make research informed decisions and not just decisions about what we think is is a nice thing to do. Um, Robert Engelbretson was the keynote speaker at the ICEB General Assembly in 2016. So we've been we've been following his research very very closely. Yes, yeah, he he, he makes a compelling presentation. Yes, <laughs> you won't be drawn any further on that. Um, fantastic. Well, I who I who, who I already told you don't use contracted rail. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you did. It did. It, do you know? It hit me like a train during the midterm. I thought, do you know? I'm listening to the president of the International Council on English Braille here, and I know for a fact. <laughs> Do you want to address that, or should we leave that there? I we can. We, I just I I don't want anything to stand between me and the accuracy of what I'm reading. Thank you. <laughs>
Is it? I mean, is it about um, formatting for you? Is it? Is it about you want the layout? No, not not at all about formatting. It's about it's just about accuracy and translation and back translation. And and I I I write as much as I read as I'm working. And I just I I I want to. I'm using a QWERTY keyboard, so you know I just it, it my brain works better to to write in the same code I'm reading. So is it that whole business of the way a screen reader will try and second guess you and it'll expand the word at the cursor? It's all that stuff, is it? Yes makes me crazy. I could understand that because that is a learning curve. Like when you try and train people on that stuff, it's so hard to explain because they've written something a certain way and then they put the cursor on it and then suddenly all bets are off. Yes. But whenever I write an article or a book, I always, I mean, I have an embosser and I always make a hard copy Braille, contracted UEB Braille version of it. So that, I mean, cause I, that's for me, that's the best way to, to proofread. It was, we got into an interesting conversation early on in the ICEB. It was kind of interesting because the, the, um, most of the presenters and, co and organizers of this conference are blind Braille readers. We, it, it, it became clear I was in a situation where I did not have hard copy Braille uh, versions of my notes, but other people did. And it, and it was revealed that everybody had, had hard copy Braille versions of their notes. And we got into a big discussion about um, how important that was for us and how much more comfortable we were making presentations with hard copy Braille notes and not making presentations from Braille displays. And especially when you're on Zoom and you're reading your notes and, you know, Joe Blow joined the conference. Well, thank you, but I didn't need to see that on my Braille display right now. Thank you very much. You know, and, and you, you can lose focus so easily. And so it's, it's really, it's really a, um, a, a kind of, I don't know, solid, you're, you're standing on a solid foundation to have a physical hard copy Braille version of your notes. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to move. They're not, <laughs> they're not going to change. They're right here under my hand. And, uh, but it was, it, it, it was, I found it quite interesting that, that almost everyone without exception and I, who didn't have hard copy Braille version of my notes was, was, was suffering terribly about it. It's an important message to get across. I was presenting at a school assembly and, uh, I was one of my messages I wanted to, to leave was just that, that there is still very much a role for hard copy while you know recognizing that technology gives us so many choices which is fabulous and we wouldn't be without it that actually there is a a reliability and i and i know for myself when i've you know delivered a eulogy or a best man speech or something like that i absolutely wouldn't do it you know any other way so uh yeah i can i can understand that let's bring in matthew and then we can get into some questions and then i just want to ask you about some of the i want to call it heritage work uh that i that i heard about during the the midterm with some of these um sort of legacy special interest codes so matthew thank you dave and thank you judy yeah we're going to take some questions from the audience now just while we wait for hands to come up, I did just want to address, uh, we were talking earlier on about UCAF and uh, how to get involved on ICEB lists and things like that. Um, Roger Furman is the chairman of UCAF and he is a Braille reader himself. Actually, UCAF is the UK Association for Accessible Formats and therefore is not just dealing with Braille. It's also dealing with large print and audio and music and electronic docs and a whole other thing. So we... Um, 
within UCAF have a Braille subject area which deals with Braille and uh, the leader of the Braille subject area is me. So uh, actually what tends to happen is if you want to be observing on an ICEB list, uh, we tend to like you to be involved in the Braille subject area by being part of the coding group or the general group uh, or, or have a specific interest. But if you write to me, um, you can reach me help at braillists.org or admin at ucaf.org or any other email address and I'll quite happily uh, take that up and have a conversation with you or you can talk to James Bowden as well who runs the coding group and he can help out with that as well. There's a question in the chat from Manisha Patel to everyone. Judy, I found it very interesting that you read uncontract, which I'm reading in uncontracted braille by the way. Um, <laughs> I insist my students to learn um, read to read contracted braille what do you suggest i should ask my students i think your students absolutely should learn contracted braille and i am in no way please do not interpret anything i'm saying about what I, how i use my braille display that i i am not a supporter of contracted braille because i certainly am i read contracted braille all all day long anything i read in hard copy braille is in contracted braille and and i I'm completely comfortable. It's it's much more about working. It's my my working medium to to read. I don't even know how to turn contracted braille on. Maybe I can try. Um, but uh, I it's it's I find it an easier medium to work in uncontracted braille as I read and write with my braille display. You mentioned earlier that you're reluctant to take on anything that you don't feel ICB can do well um, and you want to uh, effectively not, you know, bite off more than you can chew, I, I, I guess. Uh, you know, it seems like a very prudent and, and, and sensible position uh, to take. Although I did hear some discussion during the midterm about um, legacy Braille codes, about grade three and Braille shorthand. That feels like a gift that could keep on giving if you if you let it so how do you how do you square that circle i think i think we're i mean partly this is a a personal interest of of a couple of our committee members but i think there are things to learn from those codes and whatever we can do to learn from them and to not let them slip away so that you know, suddenly we find we could nobody could find a a manual for how to learn grade three braille. I, I mean, I think that's an important thing. And and you know, if nobody else is going to worry about it, perhaps we should. It's not a it's not a huge effort. I mean, we're not we're not um, we're we're not doing any more than we can do about it. And and uh, but it's kind of one of those things that that a few people are interested in. And why not? We have a hand raised from Lenita Conradi. I'm very sorry, I can't uh, pronounce. Hello, Lenita. There you go. Judy knows you. <laughs> I'm glad Judy does, and I'm glad I pronounced your name right. Conradi, yes. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to unmute you, and uh, I'm going to say, um, I guess it's uh, it's a good afternoon. No, she she lives, I think, in the UK. Oh, she's in the UK. Okay. She used to live in Namibia. Hi there. Sorry, I'm, I don't want to take a lot of your time, and it's my first um, opportunity to zoom into this forum, although I do follow it on the internet. I was just curious, and Julie and I know each other, I was just curious about the scanning project and as to why uh, LO, the NLS is actually doing that. 
Oh, we're doing it so that we can, our, the Braille Music Collection is full of many, many old treasures. But another word, another word for treasure is paper that's falling apart. And so it started as a preservation method and to, to preserve older copies of things or what we only had one copy of a music score and many people wanted it. It was an easy way to make multiple copies, send them out to people. And uh, it's been, it's just been hugely helpful for the music collection. Wow. We have um, a, a phone number that's just popped up actually. So we'll try and unmute the phone number. The phone number is from the US and ends in 908. And I think you've just been unmuted now. Good afternoon. Bob from the Bronx. Uh, Judy, some of us were thinking about uh, the idea of perhaps reintroducing some of the contractions that have been eliminated. For example, it, just a thought, uh, A-L-L-Y could be something like 456-Y or 46-Y. Um, I understand there was a policy of not introducing new contractions, but I, I can't see that going on for eternity. The reason for not introducing new contractions was really all about making UEB somewhat more palatable to those who were staunch, staunchly opposed to code change. And I mean, I don't think there was any technical reason for not introducing new contractions. Yeah, so how long would that uh, idea keep it? That's a good question. I mean, how many generations do we have to go through here? Um, I, I, I think it's an interesting idea. The, um, you know, you certainly are welcome to pass those ideas along to the, to the Code Maintenance Committee. They would certainly consider it. The U.S. representative to the Code Maintenance Committee is Jennifer Dunham. And uh, you, might, you might contact her with some of, with some of those ideas. Hypothetically, Judy, what would have to happen for, for you know, Bob's suggestion there? What, what would have to happen for a new contraction to, to come to be? Well, the members of the Code Maintenance Committee would, would all have to agree, well, not even unanimous, but they would, they would need to, to agree that it was a good idea and that they, they, should, they should do it. And then um, we've had new short form words already. Um, but they then they would take it to the executive committee. The idea has to be approved by the executive committee, and uh, then it would become the law of the land. And people, we would tell the various member countries, okay, here's a new contraction. Uh, feel free, start using it. This is a follow-up. What you know, I'm a member of the uh, ACB BRL organization. If an organization put forth that idea, would the committee? Uh, uh, consider it more heavily. The committee will consider it, whether whether it comes from an organization or an individual. It needs to come from from the U.S. Braille Authority of North America, though, and and that's, I mean, it needs to come through the Braille Authority. That's right. So to to clarify, ICB is uh, an organization of organizations. Essentially, your members are the Braille authorities of the english-speaking countries that that constitute icb so uh an individual you know wanting to lobby for a new contraction against sport for that would probably start by trying to persuade their national braille association i imagine we're going to come to judith first next before i come to judith there's been a question from ed in the chat um, we've got the english international council on english braille which deals with uh, english languages 
What about uh, languages that are not English? Are there uh, other councils to deal with those? There are. There, I know the um, Spanish-speaking countries have an organization that deals with Spanish Braille, and I think the Francophone countries have, have one as well. They, those, those codes are much less cohesive, and they don't have, as far as I know, um, they don't have anything that, that even, quote, resembles unified English Braille at this time. Is it worth also mentioning, uh, Judy, that while there are seven members to ICEB, that in fact UEB as a code is used uh, for many people learning English as a, as a foreign language around the world? Oh, yes. And it's, we frequently, frequently, every year or so, get a request from, we've had a request from Taiwan, we've had a request from Japan, countries that want to translate the manual, um, the, the UEB rulebook, uh, into their language. So, they, I mean, they, they use it so much that they actually have translated it into quite a few languages now. Brilliant. So we've got quite a few hands up now. So we're going to go to Judith first. first, And after Judith, we're going to go to Scott Edwards. Uh, Judith, I've pressed the unmute button. And ah, there we go. You are now unmuted. Good evening. Hi, Judith. It's lovely to hear, hear um, what you have to say. Um, this is just a couple of observations, really, in a way. So um, I'm not a fan of UEB. I, I use it. I'm a broad producer. Um, so obviously, I produce it. Uh, I do offer SEB. I do have some customers who prefer SEB, so I do both. Um, and I proofread children's books in UEB. And I do know people who stop reading particularly magazines because, and the, the reason people don't like it is it feels very clunky because, you know, there are things that are written out that didn't used to be written out. Um, you know, we don't have that sequencing anymore. You know, you can't run words together. Um, my bugbear is all the bold and italics and, I mean, I do think we should have capitals, but in the good old days, you wanted to emphasize something, you just use italics and you didn't need to know if it was italic or bold. And people keep telling me you do need to know, but particularly when I'm doing things for children, I do not think they need to have all these symbols because they're all two cell symbols. So if you have something in block caps and italics and bold, you've got a heck of a lot of symbols to wade through. Um, and I spend a lot of my time stripping them out because I just really find it. I just think it's too much. So I, I do think there's a, an issue there. And it, it, it's not I see. I understand all the reasons for doing it and for having UEB. But I do understand all the frustration as well, because I find it frustrating. And a few people a while ago were sort of saying that actually they think we're going to end up just doing everything in, in grade one because, this is going to be the simplest way to do things. I wonder what you think about that. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> is it the French are going over to doing everything I contracted? Or? Well, that's because they have 2,000 contractions and they've forgotten them all, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about your issue with the emphasis because um, that can be an agency decision and you don't have to use them. I don't, and I don't use them. I don't know um, UCAF's stand on on emphasis. So, yeah, I, I'm on that committee, um, the General Braille uh, Group, and we did have this on our agenda for, for quite a while, um, 
to just kind of monitor reports of the overuse of uh, type form indicators, which I think is is what you're talking about, Judith. And, and I completely agree with you. And I think in education, particularly in children's books, when you see the overuse of type forms, it is particularly egregious. And you, you wonder how children are expected to learn Braille under those circumstances. Um, it was it was our observation that there there was a decline in the overuse of type form indicators from the uh, transcription houses that that the members of the Braille General Working Group of of UCAF were were kind of exposed to. But if you think there is still a problem, do come to us um, because we're quite happy to pick that up again. You know, maybe even with a view to offering some some guidance. I was just going to say, Dave, yeah, if I could pick that up, because we, we were looking at this very much from a Braille user's point of view. Uh, Braille users were seeing too many type form indicators, and so we were we were monitoring it from that point of view. What we didn't consider, and actually I don't know why we didn't, because it's such an obvious thing to consider, is the position of the Braille producer who's taking these type form indicators out but actually has no guidance from UCAF as to when they should be taken out and when they should be left in. So, yeah, we definitely should. We have a meeting in September, and uh, I chair that meeting, so I'll make sure that that gets put back on the agenda with that slightly alternative slant on it. Okay, okay. We're not, we're not about to go into uncontracted... No, there isn't actually a movement for moving to uncontracted... Oh, heavens no. Well, certainly certainly not in the UK. Um, I, think, I think the Netherlands did it, didn't they? Well, not in the English-speaking world. Because our, our, I mean, our contraction use is relatively modest when you consider some of the other countries. And French especially. They, they have so many contractions, they just can't keep track of them all. Yeah, and and to Bob's point, you know, there are people who would actually quite like us to add a few more uh, in. So, uh, yeah, they are. But we do need to keep in mind it's not just about us. We need to keep in mind people learning Braille, adults learning Braille. I mean, how hard do we want to make it for people? We could continue this conversation all night, but we do have some other hands up. So I'm going to go to Scott next. Thanks, Judith, for your contribution there. Um, I'm going to go to Scott next, and then I'm going to go to Marsha. Um, Scott, you are now unmuted. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, my question is, basically, have we, with UEB, here we are, those of us who grew up with EBAE and now are now getting used to, to UEB, with each generation, uh, you think each generation's going to have to go through what we just went through, or are we future-proofed UEB to the to us such that it will last? I can't say that it's future-proofed. I mean, I, I I I like change, and I hope I hope it continues to evolve and and good things happen to it. But I hope they're change for good reasons, not just change for change sake. And I guess much will depend on how much print changes. That is true. And print changes all the time. I think I think Braille, a lot of Braille readers think that print doesn't ever change, but it does change. And there are new symbols in print. And, I think and a lot print, of Braille readers don't really care what print does. <laughs> I think that's probably true. But I do think that, that um, we made a major change in Braille because of computers and because of reverse translation and how how ill-suited our code was to reverse translation and reverse translation has become such a major part of of people's lives that the it, it needed to be done 
Thank you, Scott, and thank you, Judy. Uh, next, we're going to go to Marsha. After Marsha, we're going to go to Steve. Uh, good afternoon, Marsha. Well, I know there's the thing about, you know, uh, cutting down the use of all these um, indicators, you know, like the italics and bold and all this kind of stuff, one after another after another. But I'm kind of wondering, in so doing, uh, for example, when you're reading, uh, you know, something in front of someone or you're doing something like that and they say, go to the thing that's italicized and bold. Well, what if you don't have that there? So you don't know where it's italicized or bold, you know? Well, that's that's the reason why we need to give producers guidelines on when these indicators are necessary and required. And the idea, I mean, sometimes in textbooks, you know, define the words in bold. Well, it, it, it's really important that, uh, and that the, the, the bold indicators be present in that particular document. So, I mean, I don't think that anybody's contemplating the, the wholesale uh, tossing them all out and saying, forget it, we're never going to use them because we just think they're ugly. But on the other hand, um, are, do we need them in, in, in general literature? Perhaps not. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just one of these people that is, if it's there in print, since uh, most of the world, uh, millions and millions of people read print, then... But remember why it's there in print. It's it, Most often, it's either there to make the page more attractive or to make the, to draw the eye to it. Well, it's not doing anything to draw the fingers. That is true. I guess I'm just one of these people that if it's there in print, you want to go as close to the print as, as possible to get. I'm with you on that one. I, uh, I, I think we should follow print as much as possible, which is why I'm a, I'm a major fan of uh, eliminating the spacing rules. I mean, I don't want um, ch blind children growing up thinking and the should be is, is spelled A-N-D-T-H-E. Yeah, right. That Yeah, I, I see that. Yeah. We have a hand up from Steve, but we also have a hand up from Kathy Reeson, who is our code maintenance officer from Australia, where it's very early in the morning. So I'm going to unmute Kathy and see if she has anything to add to this discussion. Hello, Kathy. Good morning. I just thought I, I would in, um, introduce to say that I am sitting here listening and taking notes on what people are saying because, you know, sort of the role of the Code Maintenance Committee is to listen to what what people say and do and think. On, on the issue of the type form indicators, like your bold italics and that, I you know, sort of having transcribed a lot of children's books, um, particularly picture books, often there is, yeah, you've got writing which is in bold italics plus made, you know, sort of various print sizes and whatever to have a point. And you've just, got, as a transcriber, you make the best decision that you can to express the intention of the original writer but keeping in mind who who's going to be reading it. So there's there's lots of interesting things about this. But but to say yes, I'm I'm listening and taking notes. And um, yeah, Braille is a great thing. <laughs> there, you've you've heard it from the chair of the code maintenance committee herself. 
Um, it's okay. And we cannot question the commitment of, of rising at 4 or 5 a.m. to uh, to join us. So thank you so much, Cathy, uh, for being there. Judy, is there anything that we haven't talked about uh, in the last sort of 50, 55 minutes or so uh, that you wanted to to share where what what are you expecting in 2024 that'll be the uh, the next general assembly it will be the next general assembly i'm so hoping we can meet in person and um we will have we're we're aiming to have the next edition of the rule book uh, with an index how exciting um finished by the 2024 general assembly there won't be very many changes. I mean, some people will be happy to hear that. Some people won't. But uh, we're we're putting a lot of effort right now on the technical guidelines to update those and bring them into more modern. Uh, they they need they're they're seriously in need of revision. So that that's kind of the primary focus for the next two years, and. Uh, as well as, as as getting the rule book updated and so forth. So we just keep plugging along and doing what we do. And Yeah, and the ongoing work with the technology companies, that seems to be really uh, gathering pace, encouraging uh, the tech guys to uh, adopt the latest versions of, of LibLouis to improve the automatic translation in many Braille products, screen readers, embossers, and and so on. So, uh, I, I was I should declare an interest. I was a bit involved in the uh, the writing of the resolution for that in 2020, and so um, standing on the shoulders of giants. But uh, yeah, James Bowden seems to be heavily involved in that, and uh, it's um, it's making good progress. Shall we um, Shall we go to Steve? Hello. Hi. Fantastic um, presentation. Really enjoying it. I just wanted to briefly go back to the subject of type form indicators. Um, I'm particular in view and particularly in respect of electronic Braille. And in view of the work that's underway in the minute to develop in the EBRF standard, um, I'm guessing that future Braille displays will have to be a lot more capable actually take advantage of the sort of things that are proposed for EBRF, like uh, headings and lists and that kind of thing, links. Uh, so I was wondering, when it came to type form indicators, quite a few people seem to be not very keen on them or find them problematic, whether the panel thought there might be an option in the future for, like you have with a screen reader with punctuation, where you can actually vary the level of punctuation that you get with speech, whether with a braille display, you might be able to do similar with things like type form indicators. So if, you, if you're not keen on them or again, in the way you could just simply alter a setting and they'd, they wouldn't be displayed. I'm sure there will be a nice switch on our in our screen readers where we can suppress type form indicators. I, I feel quite confident that will be the case in EBRF. Um, it's, it's, it's a long way from being a standard, unfortunately, and we'll, we may not see it soon, but but we will see it. And so, yeah, I'm, I've, I, there may be even more, you know, if you don't like, uh, if, you know, if you want an ALLY contraction, perhaps you can uh, create one of your own. 
yeah, there are, there are definitely limitations to what EBRF will be able to do, but it's still, but like we said, at the very early stages. Kathy has put something in the chat about how to subscribe to the uh, ICEB newsletter. It's uh, on a group. It's at groups.io. And if you'd like to sign up for it, you get it by uh, sending a blank email to ICEB hyphen announce plus subscribe, as in the plus sign in the word subscribe at groups.io and uh, don't be too put off by the word subscribe it's not a financial subscription it's just an electronic um, subscription actually what that will get you is subscribe to the ICEB announced listserv and our newsletter is posted there each quarter as well as um, an occasional it's a very 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 low traffic listserv so don't worry about that but there are occasional announcements about meetings and and that sort of thing so it, it that's the announced listserv judy maybe a slightly odd uh, question it, it really struck me listening to the to the midterm and the general assembly as to how many of the icb executive are women it's true. I, our, our immediate past president is a man. We have a few. We have a few. We have. We don't. We don't discriminate. We like men very much, and um, um, we welcome any and all uh, men who'd like to become more involved. Well, Judy, thank you so much for uh, giving up your time and uh, and joining us. Thank you for devoting a whole hour to this topic. It's been wonderful. And thank you to all of you for your fantastic questions over the last hour or so. I've been Dave Williams. Thanks, Matthew, for uh, jumping in on the uh, buttons. That's been a great help. And uh, we'll be in touch very soon from myself and the rest of the Brailers Foundation team. Until next time, bye for now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailers Foundation. You can find more Braille-related content by subscribing to Brailcast, all one word, in your podcast client of choice or listening to Brailcast, connecting the dots for Brailleists everywhere on your smart speaker. You can also find past episodes on our website at brailcast.com. If you have comments on the podcast or suggestions of topics or guests for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at brailleists.org. You can also find the Brailleists on Twitter at Brailleists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. New listeners are always welcome. So if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now. The costs of producing this episode were defrayed by a grant from the Activate Fund of the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. For more information, visit wcmt.org.uk.